0: The clopping of the hooves and the, the jingle of the chains. And you kind of get affectionate for the mules after a while. And you kind of talk to them in a sing-song voice. Did you oh, sing to yours? Molly, come on, Molly. Come on, dolly. Yeah. It's a long way from Tipperary. Riding through these endless plains. But I love my red mules, and we'll get there someday. And the mules get used to that, you know, they kind of like it.
1: (laughs) From Wyoming Public Media, this is human nature. Real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Caroline Ballard. This time, we'll hear about the first person in over a century to travel the Oregon Trail, just like the old pioneers. For this story, we're hitching our wagon to a podcast from Nashville Public Radio. It's called Neighbors, and host Jacob Lewis introduces us to a man named Rinker Buck.
0: When it starts to rain in a covered wagon, you pull that canvas cover in tight and pucker it up over you. And the top is low enough so that it's hitting your cowboy hat. you know. And now you have the 70 degree aperture in front of you that you can see. And it's raining and you're wet. And the rain comes in through the front of the covered wagon and gets all over you and you put a blanket on
2: you and that's wet. So it just took a lot of persistence. Just a lot of persistence. In 2011, Rinker Buck attempted to cross the Oregon Trail, that thing from pioneer days that you learned about in middle school. It's 2,000 miles long. He did it in a covered wagon pulled by a team of mules. And he took along his brother and his brother's Jack Russell Terrier olive oil. When people first fall in love, They're usually not thinking about the day-in, day-out work of commitment, about buying groceries and cleaning the bathroom. Instead, they're thinking about romance, passion. The Oregon Trail was a mysterious lover, and Rinker noticed her one day. He's a journalist and was on a long, difficult assignment in Kansas. He needed a day off. So I drove up to see the Flint Hills of Kansas, and I ran across an
0: Oregon Trail marker, and it literally said, Oregon Trail, you know, Portland, Oregon, 2018 miles. I said,
2: wow, that's interesting. That marker sparked a curiosity. He wanted to know everything about his new obsession. He read book after book. And in one of those books, he read this one little fact. He read it almost as if it were a challenge, or like it was a close friend goading him to ask the trail out. The Oregon Trail has not been authentically crossed. You know,
0: the last documented crossing of the Oregon Trail was in 1909. And I said,
2: wow, I should just ride the trail. And then, like most relationships, the infatuation phase gave way to commitment.
0: Well, adventure is a pain in the ass. And uh, dreams are a pain in the ass. Because you get out there and you go, oh, shit, I just have to keep... Going. what's the real reason why'd you do it? I guess I guess the real reason and it's something I discovered along the trail is that I'm much more my father's son uh, than I thought and he was quite an adventurer. he'd run away from home at age 17 during the depression because there weren't any jobs for anybody in Scranton Pennsylvania and he wanted to learn to fly and his father forbid him to fly so he ran away from home and got a flying license and actually ended up
2: helping support his family all during the depression because he was employable as a pilot. His dad's name was Tom Buck. Tom had 11 children, of which Rinker was somewhere in the middle. Tom lost a leg in a plane crash in World War II. This did not keep him down. He was a jack-of-all-trades, because his curiosity drove him into new things all the time. In addition to being a pilot, he was a well-respected journalist for Look magazine. He was also a civil rights activist and an accomplished horseman.
0: I grew up on a horse farm. Our specialty in horses was uh, driving horses and draft teams and things like that. The kind that pull wagons? The kind that pull wagons, yeah. And my my dad was somewhat eccentric, but he he had a collection. By the time he died, we had 25 restored wagons in a barn.
2: One summer, Rinker's dad, Tom, did something that would change Rinker's life forever. He declared he was taking the family on a trip to bond them closer together. They would go from New Jersey to Pennsylvania. But not in a station wagon. Oh, no. In a wagon wagon. So to inform the passing traffic of what was going on, Tom tacked a sign to the back of the wagon that said, See America Slowly. Rinker was eight years old. And this trip gave him some of his first moments of true freedom. Plodding behind the wagon, pulled by a rope, was a horse named Texas. And before dusk, Tom would tell Rinker to untie that horse and ride ahead to find a place for the family to camp for the night. These small journeys at sundown had quite a ripple effect. When Rinker was 15, he and his older brother Kern took up flying. They were following their father's example, and it made them pretty famous.
0: Our first guest on To Tell the Truth is the youngest person ever to pilot an airplane across the United States. Rinker, Buck. Rinker, would you come up to
2: This is the 60s game show called To Tell the Truth. The premise of the show is this. There are three kids all claiming to be the same person. In this case, they were all claiming to be Kern, Rinker's older brother. After a panel of celebrities interrogates all three contestants you learn who the real Kern Buck is. Most celebrities guessed wrong, and Rinker came up from the audience to reveal that his brother was actually contestant number one. (laughs) Rinker and Kern built a small propeller plane in their backyard and then flew it across the country by themselves.
0: Rinker, how in the world did you and your brother ever get your parents' permission for this flight?
2: Well, uh, like someone said here, my father is a pilot already, Uh and my mother... Well, she just kind of does what my father says. You. I don't know what else to say other than it was the 60s. The years went by. Rinker grew up, became a print journalist like his father. He met a girl, got married, had kids. But then print journalism started to decline. His dad had passed away. He got divorced. And the siblings he was once close to back when they saw America slowly had gotten a little out of touch. He was now almost 60 when he saw that trail marker in Kansas. He was unattached and ready for the next great journey across the country.
0: And all the barriers, all the red lights that should have been going off, you know, warning, 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 pull up,
2: pull up, you know, all of those weren't really flashing in my brain. In fact, he planned on doing this trip entirely alone, all 2,000 miles of it. He thought he would do a little research along the way and write a book about his experience and once again see America slowly. But as he bought his wagon, he quickly realized he was in over his head. The covered wagon was essentially a community vehicle. It required traveling
0: in groups. When you got to these really steep mountain passes, you needed the extra labor. You needed three or four people to help you uh, with ropes and so forth, lower the wagons
2: down. You had to unhitch the team,
0: walk them down, lower them down.
2: And if this journey was by air, he might have asked his brother, Kern. But for this adventure, there was only one guy he could trust.
0: There is not a person in America tougher than my brother, Nick. He considers uh, tents um, for pussies.
2: (laughs) He just sleeps outside? (laughs) He just
0: sleeps outside. And he takes all his clothes off and snuggles in his sleeping bag naked with his Jack Russell Terrier olive oil climbing in beside him. And then a couple times... In the middle of the night, we thought the mules got away and we both go chasing across the desert. But I've at least got a pair of pants on and pulled some boots on. Nick's chasing there across the desert, nude. You know, it would rain on him and you wake up, and he says, well, I didn't sleep much. It was a lot of rain last night. I said, Nick, why don't you let me, I got this tent for you, I got to, he goes, I, look, I, you know, I'm grateful for your offer, Rink. I'm grateful that you consider me. But uh, I'm not a pussy like you,
2: okay? Well, in addition to that, Rinker is the kind of guy who likes sitting down with a glass of fine wine to read The New Yorker. Nick is a behemoth of a man with a giant walrus mustache and... He uses the F-bomb about as much as you and I
0: use the word and, you know. Um, but he's a Brian horseman. He's the only other brother who really took up draft teams. And, and he actually made a living at it, a good living for many years. He pulled tourists around in sleighs uh, at New England ski resorts and, and made a pretty good business of it. But we're very, very different. I, I called us a case of um, shared DNA exhibiting severe signs of uh,
2: bipolarism. I thought I'd give Nick a call and let him describe himself. Um, so I uh, 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 describe myself. That's really kind of difficult. Well, Nick. Hey, everybody, I'm Nick.
0: Um... Uh,
2: no, I. Uh, whew. After easing into the conversation, he mentioned that some people have called him a real character, which he doesn't really like.
0: Nobody thinks of themselves as a character. Um, you just are who you are.
2: Nick has ADD and a more go-with-the-flow personality.
0: So I do have a different way of looking at the
2: world. Rinker, despite going on several grand adventures in his life, likes to investigate everything he can about something before he takes the first step. I say about myself I'm a risk-taker who proceeds with an abundance of caution. For instance, there was a section of the trip where Nick was thinking about leaving, and Rinker realized he would need to know how to grease the wagon wheels. So he asked Nick how.
0: You jack the wagon up, take the knot off, clean the grease off, put some more grease on, put the wheel back on, let the link down and go on to the next wheel. And he said, well, wait a minute now, well, hold on a second. And he pulls out a pad and a piece of paper and he says, well, what's the first thing you do? Jack the wagon up. And he starts writing down, get the jack out of the wagon. And and it's like, whoa, you know, that's a given. You got the jack already out of the wagon.
2: Rinker would have a lot of uncertainty to face on this trip, but he had prepared as best he could. The two now had a wagon, a team of three mules they bought from an Amish man, and they were almost ready to set off on the trail.
0: The night before, I stayed up in the wagon late, and I go, Oh boy, what have you gotten yourself into? 2,000 miles with a team of mules that you've hardly driven at all yet. Can I do this? Can I make it? Will I ever get comfortable with driving such a big, powerful, and kind of wild still, a little bit, uh, mule team?
2: Down in a place called Santa Fe, Tennessee, and yes, you did hear that right, Rinker and I drove around in a wagon with a couple of mules on some back roads. I was struck by how much he loves the animals.
0: The clapping of the hooves and the, the jingle of the chains. And you kind of get affectionate for the mules after a while. And you kind of talk to them in a sing song voice. Did you oh, sing to yours? Molly, come on, Molly, come on, Dolly. It's a long way from Tipperary. Riding through these endless plains But I love my red mules And we'll get there someday And the mules get used to that, you know, they kind of like it.
2: (laughs) Mules were the engine of choice for the early pioneers. They are what you get when you breed a male donkey and a female horse. The result is a sterile animal. But compared to a horse, they can go longer without water, they're considered much smarter, and they eat less feed. Mules' eyes are also farther back on their head, so they can see their rear feet, which makes them very sure-footed on rough terrain, which was very important crossing the mountains, because the trail wasn't really one standardized thing. It's like St. Joe to out there, however the hell you can get there in a wagon. (laughs) Is that a good summation? Yeah. Yeah, anywhere, that's a perfect summation. But the journey had a natural path that was formed by rivers. You basically follow the
0: plat to the Sweetwater to the bear, to the snake, to the port neuf, and so forth, till you get to the Columbia River Gorge. As long as you're within sight of those rivers, you're on the
2: trail, because the pioneers were all over the place. That's the how. But why did this thing exist in the first place? That's the title music from the 80s computer game, The Oregon Trail, In it, you cross the trail with a wagon pulled by some oxen. You have to figure out what supplies to take, hunt for food, and watch various members of your party die of dysentery. It's very educational. The nation was in a hurry to claim the West and populate it by as many people as possible. In the mid-1800s, Manifest Destiny swept the country. That's the belief that expansion of America out West was both justified and inevitable. There were many reasons for this, but I'm going to try to distill it down to just three. One was religious. Irish Catholics and Mormons were fleeing persecution, while various other Christian denominations just wanted to beat other denominations out there. Uh, We need to get there before the Methodists do. In fact, once people got to Oregon, they could find one town that was made up of all Baptists, go a little farther down the road, and find another one that was made up entirely of Presbyterians. Another reason was political. The Northwest Territory, where Oregon was located, was jointly occupied by the U.S. and Great Britain. James K. Polk was the president at the time, and, well, he wanted it all for the U.S. He figured if the country could get enough people out there that they would just own it by default, squatter's rights. It was squatter's rights, yes. He knew England could never sustain a war over it because it was just too far away. The last reason I'll mention why people went west on the Oregon Trail was an economic one. The country was in a depression from the Great Panic of 1837. Unemployment skyrocketed. Farmers couldn't even make a living because lands were drying up due to bad agricultural practices. You throw that all in a pot, add the promise of free land, a little thing called the gold rush, and a whole lot of starry-eyed romanticism, and you've got a mass migration west. An estimated half a million people made the journey. Today, roughly half of the trail is paved state highway, and the other half is pretty much like it was. People drive it or hike sections of it.
0: You know, in other words, nobody crosses the trail anymore by a covered wagon,
2: except a couple of head cases from New England, like my brother and I. Out of Troy, Kansas, Rinker, Nick, and Olive Oil set their faces west. Like so many pioneers before them, they went along with their thoughts, their own voices, and the plodding of hooves. But on the back of their wagon was a sign see America slowly but seeing it slowly it's not easy
0: there are so many parts of your body that are whipped and and drained your hands from holding back a big team all day your hands are uh, really chafed and aching my hands would ache at the end of the day your arms are aching first two weeks of the trip we had we both had back problems because the wagon is so bumpy but then our, our backs adjusted
2: In Kansas, they dodged thunderstorms and heavy rain most of the time. Nebraska was the same. In fact, they ran into the storm system that produced a monster tornado that devastated Joplin, Missouri. Which was about the most violent thing I've ever experienced. It came right, right over our heads when we were in Steel City, Nebraska. The trail flooded so badly they had to stop for two days. But when the clouds finally cleared... The sun revealed...
0: Acres and acres of just natural wildflowers. The scent is extraordinary. You wouldn't pick up that scent speeding by in a car. Uh, And you feel almost drugged, you know, by the beautiful fragrances of these lavenders and purple plants and stuff.
2: Going over the plains, they were quite a spectacle. People would stop and take pictures with the two brothers and their dog. But they kept getting one critique over and over.
0: How come you guys are riding in a covered wagon and you don't have on your period dress? And we considered that all phony. We don't, reenacting is a bunch of bull. And uh, Nick got really sick of it. And I was like, where's your period dress? Where's your period dress? And finally he just called down to this lady once from, from the wagon. And you know, he said, oh. After I went through menopause 15 years ago, I threw away my period dresses, okay?
2: <laughs> Despite this annoyance, people were very generous on their trip. Their brothers referred to them as their trail family. But the elements were not as kind.
0: The toughest thing we faced on the trip was wind. Okay, the prevailing wind out on the plains. There's no forests out there or anything else. You can be going along with a 40-mile-an-hour 40, 40 wind... 35, 30-mile-an-hour wind, on your face all day, spitting sand and gravel in your face and stuff. I mean, there were days that uh, gravel being blown at us by the wind was so severe that uh, it left marks on my face, you know.
2: In the Wyoming desert, they had issues with water. They had to ride 50 miles in one day to make it to the next available source. The irony was that when they arrived a massive downpour started. From there, they inched into the mountains where they broke a wagon wheel 40 miles away from any sign of civilization. Nature and a lot of other things were giving me a lot of pushback.
0: And it wasn't doing nature any good because the harder nature pushed back on me, the more I wanted to finish the trip. So I learned on that trip that adversity emboldens you. Adversity doesn't necessarily make you want to
2: give up. Rinker was about to prove that with the toughest trial of their journey. When they got to the border of Idaho, they came to a fork in the road. To the right was what looked like an easy, gently sloping section of the trail. To the left, a suicide mission straight down a cliff. After consulting a land management office, they learned that the trail to the right hadn't been maintained and was now a forest. A wagon would not make it through. Having been forced to take the left trail was scary, but it took the uncertainty out of the equation. But there was also something else, a bit of an anomaly that helped Rinker move forward. Being in the mountains, Rinker was getting hypoxia, or oxygen starvation from the altitude. For some people, that causes sluggishness, depression, and worry. But for other people, it causes euphoria. And my uh, symptom has always been euphoria. Rinker walked to the edge and looked down the steep decline of hard slate rock. It dropped 2,000 feet in just under a mile. But in his euphoric state, he just shrugged his shoulders and said, Uh, we'll be good. <laughs> but now he had to actually do it. On the right of this narrow trail was a sheer rock wall. To the left, a 300-foot drop. Rinker and Nick tied logs to the back of the wagon to create drag.
0: To sort of slow us down so the wagon wouldn't run away from us because we were
2: on such steep terrain that the brakes wouldn't really hold us. They started and stopped sliding down slowly, sometimes veering close to the edge, sometimes dragging the right wheel hubs on the rock wall. They rode the brakes all the way down. And they
0: were smoking this ugly, foul-smelling rubber fume when we got to the bottom of the valley.
2: They had made it to the Bear River Valley, a beautiful vista of green, and down the middle, the Bear River. From there, they put on mile after mile. After four months in the wagon, they hit a rough snowstorm near Baker City, Oregon, and they decided that it was time to call the journey done. They hadn't made it to Portland, but they made it to Oregon, and they knew they couldn't go any further in the snow. And as they pulled into that last stop, there was something different about Rinker. I was completely relaxed,
0: completely comfortable, driving that team in, unhitching them myself while my brother talked to a bunch of people. Nothing bothered me, nothing worried me. Uncertainty no longer bothered me. Uh, So I would say uh, it was a, it, it was kind of a baptism by deep travel,
2: you know. Nick parted ways, driving back home, and Rinker stayed a couple weeks in Baker City. Kind of down, he faced a new kind of uncertainty.
0: I I guess I was I was I was lonely and I missed Nick a lot. Yeah, and we'd already I'd made an arrangement and we trucked our mules down to a place in Idaho where they would be very well taken care of, and I missed them a lot. But I visited them for a few days on the way home. Um, I don't think I was so much depressed. It's just
2: lonely and. And purposeless. Well, what am I going to do now? The thing was, Rinker had changed. He was better with mules. He lost 25 pounds. He made it down Dempsey Ridge. But the triumph of conquering the trail, of conquering the need to have everything calculated beforehand, it was fleeting. You know, and and that's a
0: big problem when you make these big trips and you set these high goals, and then you get to the end of it and you, you know, you get off your horse at night and you realize, ah, shit. I'm still the same old person. Nothing's changed. You know, my back is sore in the same way it is. You know, I want to go to a bar and drink too much bourbon. Nothing's changed, you know. And uh, so there's a feeling of uh, letdown and ennui that way for a few days. And then, then you recover, you know.
2: Rinker can't become a different person. He can't become like his brother, content to not know the next step. No, he must continually force himself to face uncertainty. But that's okay. In fact, he's hungry for the challenge. But his affair with the trail was over. He had to find a new lover. So he decided to build a flat-bottom boat. He named it Patience. He then started planning his next quest, to float down the river from Elizabeth, Pennsylvania, all the way to New Orleans.
1: That story comes to us from Nashville Public Radio's podcast, Neighbors, hosted and produced by Jacob Lewis. It was edited by Emily Seiner, Mac Leinbaugh, Tony Gonzalez, and Anita Bug, and mastered by Carl Peterson. Special thanks to William Tyler and Merge Records for some of the music. Other music by Poddington Bear and Chris Zabriskie. You can listen to more episodes of Neighbors at NashvillePublicRadio.org and wherever you download your podcasts. And you can see photos of Rinker Buck and his mule team at our website, humannaturepodcast.org. Before we go, we have a bunch more people to thank for supporting this podcast during our recent fundraiser. If you didn't have a chance to score a sticker or a t-shirt, head over to humannaturepodcast.org and click on Donate. Ellen Hines wins for the longest distance donation. She's from Geelong, Australia, and is listening from Gaziantep, Turkey. And from right here in Wyoming, thanks to Katie and Jesse Mann from Laramie, Crystal and Cody McCreary from Lander, Kelly Ravner from Pinedale, Robert and Marilyn Mullen from Casper, and Jennifer and Michael Tennikin from Jackson. Big thanks also to Samantha Allen and Aaron Long and Sean Sparks, all from Austin, Texas, Alice and Philip Osborne from Falls Church, Virginia, and Amber Stack from Wheeling, Illinois. Thanks also to Thomas and Jennifer Collins from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Chris Hennemeyer and Katie Prudhomme from Bethesda, Maryland, who say, hands down, our favorite podcast. And we're also grateful to all the anonymous supporters. We couldn't do it without you. I'm Caroline Ballard. Our digital producer is Anna Rader. The show's executive producer is Micah Schweitzer. The theme song is by Caught a Ghost. Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media
0: we had a couple f-bomb fights rinker says three but i can't i can only remember two the only thing i remember about the two fights is that i was
2: right and he was wrong